Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together tonight. Our Father in heaven, we read and we believe that our rock is truth itself. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way and truth to thee, our Father. We thank thee that thou hast revealed to us absolute truth in the precious scriptures that we have and we believe them. Our Father, we trust Thee because You have revealed Yourself to us through the creation. You have revealed Yourself to us in our conscience. You have revealed Yourself to us by Your Spirit and by Your Scriptures. And we believe. And our Father, we will bet our lives in this world, every small part of them, and eternal life in the world to come, based on Your Scriptures. We believe them. Heavenly Father, thank You for these men that are sitting here tonight that want to hear, want to learn, and want to hold fast to your scriptures. You have not left them or me alone in the earth, but we have one another, and we thank thee for this blessing, and we pray that tonight our time together will be profitable, that you will open up our hearts and our minds, and that you will make the word of God simple and plain, that we might rejoice in a superficial review, an elementary review of this great subject of logic and reasoning and rhetoric, which is scattered throughout your word. But let us lay hold of the important principles tonight. Be with those that are yet on their way. Be with our wives and children away from us. And now bless your word, that it may go forth with free course and be glorified among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The goal is to think about thinking. So that we learn to think rightly, we learn to speak rightly, we learn to catch fallacies in reasoning that others use. I call it the logic of faith. Faith, our faith, the Christian faith is very logical. There are a whole number of faiths that aren't logical at all. They're illogical and they have to divorce themselves from logic in order to be able to pass them off on their poor constituents, hearers, and congregations. I give you a disclaimer tonight that this is a elementary review and a short review compared to what this subject deserves. It's a huge subject, huge subject in the Bible from cover to cover. The Lord is truth and the Lord is logical and the Lord presents his truth in a logical way and demands that you consider it from a standpoint of logic. If you truly are interested in this subject, there's going to be a lot of links and books offered to you at the end. Here's what the Lord says to us in Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. That is to come together and think soberly and critically about the truth of His existence and in this particular context, His forgiveness. One of my favorite passages on this subject is Isaiah 41:21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. This is a debate. This is a challenge. This is a forensic challenge. You come to me with your best arguments and show them to me because I'll show you who is God and that I'm the only one that should be worshipped in this universe. Produce your cause. This is logic in the Bible. 
The New Testament tells us to prove all things. That means when we hear something or see something, we shouldn't believe it because we saw it or heard it. We shouldn't let the images in our eyes or ears move us. We should examine it, criticize it, tear it apart, and assess it whether it was presented truly or not, and to hold fast that which is good. Peter would tell us that we ought to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason, a reason, not that you believe it, not your opinion, but a reason of the hope that is in you and to be able to do it with meekness and fear. What is logic? I could snow you tonight with the Greek name of our Lord Jesus Christ in his divine nature, the Logos of heaven, and how that logic comes from his very divine name in the Greek language being an expression of an idea and a con- or a concept in the name, the Word of God. But I'm not going to do that. We don't need it. We have our English Bibles. And while the word logic is not in our English Bibles, you're going to see how much logic is in your Bible before we finish. What is logic? It's the science that deals with thinking. So we want to think about thinking tonight. We want to consider thinking. Good thinking, bad thinking. It's the rules that govern right reasoning. To reason, as we're going to define it in just a moment, is to analyze a subject and determine its truthfulness or not. Logic contains the rules to separate correct thinking from false thinking. We want to be able to see some ideas and learn some ideas tonight to keep us from being schnookered by those who use illogical forms of argument to convince us of an error. Logic is the methods to persuade an opponent. All that's contained as various definitions of the word logic. How many here have taken a speech class in high school or college? How about a logic class? A few. Rare today. It's pitiful. What is reasoning? This is a Bible word that's used often. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. It's a statement. A reason is a statement used to argue or prove a point. When you reason in your mind, it's the intellectual power of the mind to think about something. Reasoning is thinking in a connected or logical way. And see, these words are synonyms for each other to various degrees. So we have the word logical in the definition of the word reasoning. It's the work of persuading a person to see a point. When you reason with somebody, you present your best evidence to convince them of the validity of what you're telling them. What is rhetoric? This is a word that you don't hear much. It's a lost R that the three R's miss. You've heard about the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's only in education in the last few generations. Prior to that, you need two other R's that are more important than those three. Or they're right up there with those three. One is certainly more important. It's religion and rhetoric. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. There's a whole lot more than that. You can read and not understand, and you can write and not convey truth because you don't know rhetoric. And if you don't have religion, it's all worthless. So there should be five R's at least. And then some of you would want two more R's, rest and recreation. 
It's just to keep you relaxed. Rhetoric is the art of using language to persuade. It's the rules for persuasive speech or writing. It's the basis for eloquent argumentation. Who in the Bible was an eloquent man? The Bible tells us that. Apollos. He was also mighty in the Scriptures. And he was what in spirit? Fervent. He was one imposing person to meet and convince. But a man and his wife did, Aquila and Priscilla, of the truth of the gospel. Is it important to learn about logic, reasoning, and rhetoric? You can't interpret the Bible without it. You can't persuade a person without it. Men have been corrupting doctrine for 2,000 years or so since the apostles, and we want to be able to see through some of their false reasoning. The devil and men are deceivers by illogic. The, the devil's a master at it, and we're not supposed to be ignorant of his devices. Deceivers and deceived are getting worse and worse. Is that too low in the back for you to see the bottom row? Thank you. Here are some sample verses in the Bible about logic. If you were to look up any of these, you would find out that these are examples or precepts about using logic or reasoning or rhetoric in learning, believing, thinking, or presenting the truth. Now, our God is logical. Bless our God. Our God is truth itself. Anything we have that we can call truth is by revelation from Him. He is, the Lord Jesus Christ would say, He is the way, the truth, and the life. God's truth. Two plus two equals four for God as well as us. And the reason we know it is because He taught it to us. His ways are equal. The Bible tells us that our ways are the ways that are not equal sometimes. He dares men to bring their best arguments because He'll overthrow them. He mocks the lies of foolish men that reason without making him the foundation of all proper thinking. He is independent truth and evidence itself. What is his name? I am that I am. That is the first rule of logic. Identity. I am that I am. My existence cannot be defined or explained any other way than to say I am that I am. It is an incredible statement about the logical, truthful existence and being of our God. The Bible is logical. It is logical in its content throughout it. It doesn't, you can't catch the Bible coming and going, at least in the King James Version. We can in other versions, but not the King James Version. It has examples of godly men reasoning in the Bible. It establishes doctrine by logical extension. It refutes error by logical refutation. The Bible is logical in several different ways. The Bible is logical to help us interpret it. And when we interpret the Bible, we are reaching into that collection of words that make up our King James Bible and pulling out God's thoughts. We have to give the sense to the words of Scripture in order to get the right thought from those words. But it's God's thoughts. So is logic important? Is the Bible logical? Logic is important and the Bible is logical. And we need to learn it to be able to interpret the words of Scripture to know God's thoughts. We want 
to learn logic so that we can understand our thoughts, so that we can learn to think correctly when we hear something, see something, or are reading something in or out of the Bible. So logic's important for our understanding, for our thoughts. Logic is necessary for converting others. So you need to learn how to think through their thoughts and find where the fallacy is in their reasoning so that you can correct them and help them. Look at logic. The Bible's logical, and if we'll learn a little bit about logic, it'll help us interpret God's words so we know His thoughts. It'll help us understand how to think correctly, which are our thoughts, and it'll help us see through the errors in others' thoughts. The Bible is accurate, consistent, and unified, and we're thankful for it. It's the most reasonable set of facts you're ever going to encounter in your life. Men without faith are unreasonable, and the Bible tells us that. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul prayed, asked for prayer, that he would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. It's a verse we refer to often because faith is very reasonable. Faith helps us start with the right foundation for all thinking, and that is God is. They start without God, and it doesn't matter if their argumentation is perfect, they're starting with a faulty premise, and their conclusions are all wrong, even if their argumentation is perfect. Atheists must divide between faith and reason. They don't think the two belong together. But our faith is very reasonable. Truth requires faith. God has revealed things to us, and it's all truth. And for us to learn and to accumulate and acquire that truth, we need to believe the things that he's revealed to us. Arguments from faith must be received. Men without faith are unreasonable. Reasoning from revelation results in truth. God reveals things. We believe it, interpret it, and we have truth. Reasoning from evolution indicates insanity because you're starting from nothing and no matter how well you reason, like I said just a moment ago, you end up with confusion. Truth never fails, brethren. Seven reasons cannot persuade a sluggard, but it's still the truth. Though a sluggard This is the book of Proverbs that tells us, though a sluggard will resent and reject seven men that render a good reason why he should get to work, it's still the truth. Truth never fails. Raging or laughing cannot persuade a fool, but the truth you presented to him is still the truth. Paul always won when he presented the truth. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, that whether he was a saver of death unto death in some men or life unto life in other men, Paul always triumphed in presenting truth, and you should believe that about truth. Truth never fails. Truth is truth. It is always right. It is always relevant. It is always absolute. It works. Trust it. Seek it. Embrace it. Hold it. Teach it. Defend it. The truth is the truth. But some are fools, and they'll reject it. God laughs last and best 
and us with him when it comes to truth. Truth is a privilege, brethren. And we want to bless the God of heaven and thank him for revealing himself to us through his word. To thank him for creating us. To thank him for sending men to preach the gospel to us. To thank him for opening our hearts and minds and having purpose to do so from the foundation of the world that we would believe the truth. Truth is a privilege. So we want to reject foolish and unlearned questions from scorners. And we want to reject those scorners who resent correction. We don't waste our holy pearls on dogs and pigs. And who taught us that? The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6 will answer a fool briefly to shut his mouth, according to Proverbs 26, 4. But we're going to leave him very quickly lest we stoop to his folly, Proverbs 26, 5. It's a privilege and we're blessed. And if you're feeling like you're going to sleep right now, you're not very thankful. Because God's given us something wonderful. And it's it's your wisdom to force yourself to stay awake and to pay attention and just be thinking through, God has blessed me. The rest of the world lieth in darkness, brethren. That's what the Bible says. And he has shown us his light. Science serves the Bible. It's not an enemy. True science supports the Bible. It doesn't overthrow it or contradict it. Evolution, psychology, etc., those aren't sciences. They're religions. They're religions of men who have put together a system of hypotheses and hallucinations and propositions based in their own imagination. They, they haven't been proven. They repeatedly violate the scientific method of observing something and repeating something and being able to duplicate a matter. They can't do it. God marked them as science falsely so-called a long time ago in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. They are crazed speculations of God-hating atheists when it comes to evolution and psychology and sociology and the other so-called sciences today that are manifestly false because they're not based on their own definition of how to determine truth by the scientific method, and they're contrary to the Word of God. We want to reject the Dark Ages, brethren. Catholicism wants to separate faith and science and keep them separate for a reason. They need to do that in order to teach transubstantiation. Because in transubstantiation, the substance of the cracker has been transformed to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Son of God, and yet a person can hold it, analyze it, taste it, break it, dissolve it, put it under a microscope, and find out that it's still a cracker. And so Catholics learn early, we divorce faith and science. Therefore, weeping statutes and shrouds become easy for them, because they've already divorced their mind from their faith. Their logic begins with church authority called the magisterium. Our logic begins with the scriptures. That's the difference between the dark ages and a church with light and a man with light. True Christianity is logical, brethren, but there's not a whole lot of logic today in Christianity because there isn't much true Christianity. Effeminate compromisers that make up most so-called Christians today worship emotion. The preaching is emotional if there is any preaching. 
The praising is emotional. They get together for emotion. Thus, the current rejection of doctrine. They've turned away their ears from sound doctrine to fables and an obsession for entertainment. And that is how creeps take captive silly women because women are the most emotional of all and those women are ever learning without finding the truth. And this is the state of America today instead of loving logic, reasoning, and rhetoric and finding God's truth by interpreting and applying His Word in a logical way. Humanists are insane. Those who don't start with God as the foundation for their thinking, they start reasoning from a space vacuum. There was nothing. Then there was something. Then that something was all chaotic. Then that chaotic stuff became very organized. And they just reasoned from a vacuum. And so when you start with the vacuum, you end up without a proper conclusion, though your argumentation might be quite good. Even their valid arguments result only in insane thoughts. We start with God's existence as a given. Now, when we say a given, we can walk outside and know that He's there. We can get down on our knees and know that He's in us because He speaks to us by faith and His Spirit. We look at His Word and we know that it addresses every concern of our lives and our hearts and we know that there's a God in heaven who had to have written it. We know these things, although I'm calling them a given here. Anyone denying God's existence is hopeless. There's, there's no effort in the Bible to deal with and help someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God except to dare them to show themselves so that God could ridicule them. Paul always assumed that a person believed in God. When he was on Mars Hill... He, he took as his introduction their altar to the unknown God. I'll introduce you to him, he said. They always start out with the existence of God. God and the Bible are proven by evidence. Do you remember many years ago when I preached a long series of messages why we believe the Bible? Because it has tons of internal evidence that it is indeed an inspired book. Their faith is insanely great. In fact, their faith is greater than ours because it requires a greater stretch of their imagination than ours does. They are unreasonable and wicked by God's definition. They are diapered idiots, reasoning from a big bang guess, producing hallucinations. One year they are in diapers. Two years later they're back in diapers. But in that year in between they hallucinate about a big bang that they guess about. And from that they reason outward that we're nuts, that the Bible's false. Because after all, they were in diapers and they end in diapers. And they hate God, and that's why they get rid of Him. It takes greater faith to believe their dreams than the faith it takes to believe the Bible that there is an intelligent Creator that created us and governs this universe and formed all of its beauty and design and reproductive power We reason from the first cause of all things. They reason from nothing caused all things. Some of them reason from because there really is nothing. Their faith is a devilish lie. Objective knowledge is hated today. Sound bites, noise, excitement are more important than objective knowledge. 
Absolute truth is hated. They find a place to stand, to believe, to live in between truth and error. They don't want absolutes. Satan is the father of all of it. He was the liar from the beginning. And whenever you see their lies or hear their lies, you know where they came from because he is the father of them all. His arguments are subtle sometimes, but his arguments are false. His followers are deranged and oppose themselves just like the Bible tells us. The Bible just flat out tells us that if we find a person who opposes himself, we need to trust the Lord that perchance the Lord might grant him repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that he might recover himself out of the snare of the devil who is taken captive by him at his will. The world cannot think because the God of this world has captivated them literally and willingly, and they follow him. Here's what the world thinks about us. Faith-based, connect the dots, circular reasoning. I know the Bible is true because the Bible tells me so. They mock that. Now, brethren, as we look at this little cartoon where we, where they have the words, I know the Bible is true, what do they say? I know Charles Darwin is true. Now, who would you rather put your confidence in? Maybe next time we need a biographical sketch of Charles Darwin's life and what he denied about his theories before he got to die and about the men who have denied his theories since but yet want to call them Darwinians because they can't reject it altogether or they're in serious trouble with their peers. But if we put, instead of, I know the Bible is true, I know Charles Darwin is true, on what basis? Because Charles Darwin said he was true. Because all my peers say so. And if I because if I disagree with my peers, I'm in trouble? They're in far worse shape than we are. Ours is based on an intelligent creator God who created us and wrote us a book that deals with every part of our lives, and we know it's true. Just pull out of the Bible what it says about marriage. Just what it says about marriage, throw the rest away in this particular illustration, deny the existence of God, but when you read what the Bible says about a husband and a wife relating to each other, you know it's the best advice you have ever heard, seen, or thought of anywhere. You know that there is someone behind that Bible that knows a man and a woman better than anyone else that's ever written about them. That's what they think of us. They say, I know Charles Darwin is true because I haven't proven him false yet. I know Charles Darwin is true because if I don't, I'll lose tenure at the university I teach at. <laughs> they have nothing. Why should we learn logic? Because it's the rules for thinking and persuading. Faith is the logical result from hearing God's Word. The pulpit is for the purpose of hearing the Word of God, and then your mind, correctly trained, can take those words of Scripture that you hear and convert them to truth. They are truth, but if you mishear them, misapply them, confuse them, you will lose the truth in the transfer from the Word of God through the voice of a preacher to your ears. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, but you need to learn to logically take in what you've heard so that you connect 
the thoughts properly. Scripture plus logic equals truth. Scripture is truth by itself. But Scripture plus logic makes it truth to your mind. Because if your mind isn't logically trained to some degree, that truth will be confused and cluttered as it enters your ears and settles in your mind and heart. We want to start right. That's with the Bible. And we want to reason right with proper rules of logic. Let's cause some pain to some illogical heretics. And heresy is always illogical. You just have to find it. Christians should never apologize, brethren. We never need to apologize for our faith, ever. We have the perfect source of knowledge in the Bible. Bible Christians make great philosophers. On what basis? Because we know everything that has been, what is, and what shall be. We know wisdom, prudence, equity, and judgment. We have understanding from the Word of God. We know the past, present, and future of everything. But we must reason rightly from the Scriptures as we learn and apply what God's revealed. Logic is like math. If you didn't like math, you're not going to like logic. If you like math, you're going to like logic. It is very objective. It's based on rules and axioms. And you build toward a conclusion. It's based on some of the very same rules that you learned in mathematics. Rules are added to rules to reach outcomes, to be able to solve problems. Axioms you hated to memorize, learn to love them. Uh, probably in geometry, about the 10th grade, for those of you who follow the scope and sequence of our public education system, learn to hate axioms of geometry. But those axioms of geometry are wonderful. They're logical. They help you solve problems. And logic is very much the same. Logic applies intelligence to help us think right so that we take evidence and do the proper things with it to convert it to accurate, truthful conclusions. Identity. The first rule of logic and brethren, we are skimming the surface in a high-speed bass boat. There's so much to learn, but do you know what? You can go home and type in Google, rules of logic, and you will have nice-looking websites that you can read in a half an hour and learn a great deal on any point or part of logic. It's a huge subject. Huge. But identity, a thing is itself. A equals A. All exist, every object, every proposition Every idea that exists is itself, and it's not something else. And you think that way all the time, though you may not have put words to it. All thinking starts right here. A equals A. A thing has one meaning. That is why we define our terms on a frequent basis. We define exactly what we're talking about so there isn't confusion because we want to identify the thing at hand. We want to be precise. The rule of contradiction. Every object or every statement or every proposition is either true or false. A is not B. A thing is itself. It's not another thing. Things that are different are not the same. And we don't get confused. We can't. It's how you determine truth and error. Excluded middle. I'm sorry about the formatting that changed. As I went from 
Windows Office 7 to Windows compatibility mode on a different computer. It's part of planned obsolescence of a man named Bill Gates, and I did want to get his name out at least once. Excluded middle. There's no middle ground between truth and error. A proposition is not partly false and partly true, or vice versa. It's either true or it's false. An inference is if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the law of inference. That's the fourth rule of logical thinking. And the Bible is is cram-packed full of this, especially the book of Proverbs, where an aspect of wisdom is compared to something else so that you can make the connection. If A equals B and B equals C, then A is going to equal C. Like this. Penguins are black and white. Some old TV shows are black and white. Therefore, some penguins are old TV shows. Can you find the logical fallacy in the major premise, minor premise, or conclusion? The bottom of the little cartoon says logic. Another thing that penguins aren't very good at, because that's incorrect thinking. Deductive reasoning is part of logical thinking. It's arguing from general rules to particular facts. It's the most powerful and surest form of reasoning, and it's what the Bible uses heavily. It, it, we start with absolute axioms of truth. We call them rules, propositions from the Bible that are absolutely true, and we apply them to individual cases. It's the general method of Bible interpretation. is deductive reasoning. Syllogisms, and I'll show you some shortly, are a common way of illustrating it. Here's the rule of inference as we start out with some deductive reasoning to let you see how it works. If A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. Dogs cannot talk. Spot is a dog. Spot cannot talk. That's deductive reasoning from a major premise that dogs cannot talk, a minor premise that Spot is a dog, with a conclusion that follows as surely as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Spot cannot talk. But now this, this can become very much more complicated and difficult than that example by variations on whether it's all, most, some, or none of each of the premises. How about this one? Major premise. No reptiles have fur. Minor premise. All snakes are reptiles. Conclusion. Therefore, no snake has fur. This is how we reason deductively, starting out with absolute statements. No reptiles have fur. And see, we love this in the Bible. We love to find God revealing to us absolute statements from which we can reason. This form of deductive reasoning can get difficult, however. I'm not going to show you that difficulty. There's a, a large number of variations on those syllogisms. How about this one? Baseball players are rich. John Doe is rich. Therefore, John Doe is a baseball player. 
False. John Doe is a doctor. The major premise is not exclusive to ball players. It doesn't say baseball players are the only ones that are rich. If it had said that, we'd be closer to proving the point. Do you follow that that syllogism, the rules for each of its premises must be followed or you're going to end up with a collusion, a conclusion that's false. God created all things. We love John 1 3. I am a thing. Therefore God created me. The wages of sin is death. An absolute statement of God's word. I have sinned. I must die. We reason out of the Bible with the absolute statements of God's word. Jesus died for sinners. Judas was a sinner. Therefore, Jesus died for Judas. Are all the rich only baseball players? Did Jesus die for all sinners? No. Not what we believe the Word of God teaches. He died for those the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. He died for the sheep. He died for His church. The conclusion does not follow. This is illogical reasoning. For the major premise is too vague. Though we would agree with Jesus died for sinners. But if you're going to take that statement and try to argue from it, you need to make it more precise. Did Jesus die for all? Most, some, or no sinners? The other kind of reasoning is inductive reasoning, and it's the opposite of deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning begins with an absolute statement that is certain truth, that's a general rule, and we apply it to particular or specific facts or situations. Inductive reasoning is taking a whole big pile of individual or particular facts and trying to derive general rules from that big pile of observations or verses. It's a more dangerous way of reasoning, but it's most people's favorite in politics and religion. We argue from particular facts to general rules. It's a weaker form of reasoning, and it can never be final. Because there may be a few more observations of a particular event that you have not considered yet. Collect as many observations as possible to suggest universal rules satisfying them all. That's what inductive reasoning is. You collect as many observations. It could be you in a lab, or it could be you reading your Bible and looking up every verse about child training. We collect them all together and come up with general rules. It's a dangerous way to reason from the Bible, and you better be very careful with it. Do saints sin after conversion? Here's inductive reasoning. Noah sinned. Moses sinned. David sinned. Peter sinned. Ananias in Acts chapter 5 sinned. Conclusion. Saints do sin after conversion. Everything looks good. We have not proven our point well enough to rest on that as absolute truth. That kind of inductive reasoning is inadequate. We cannot take that conclusion and bet our futures on it and bet truth on it. Now, you happen to know that it's truth, but forget what you know and look at the words. That is inadequate. Do saints sin after conversion? Consider 
The Bible records some saints without sins, and they weren't in your list. What I'm, what I mean by that is, the Bible has records of some saints, and it doesn't tell us of any faults or sins in their lives, but you didn't mention any of them. We have not examined every single saint, because there's a whole lot of saints outside the pages of Scripture. So the conclusion has not been proven. It would be much better to go to 1 John 1.10 and find out that he that saith he is without sin or has not sinned is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Then you could add illustrations if desired. The, the preferred way is to find the axiom of truth in God's word where God has said, he that saith he is without sin is a liar. We start there on bedrock of God's revealed truth. Then we go in the Bible and show all these examples of some of the greatest men in Scripture sinning after their conversions. Inductive reasoning, caution needs to be used. We want to start with inspired propositions for our proof. Because we're always asking, have we sampled the Bible adequately? Have I really read it enough? Have I used my Strong's Concordance enough, my online Bible program, to get every passage of Scripture that deals with this subject? Have we properly interpreted the sample? Have we drawn the right conclusion? All these questions come up with inductive reasoning. Have we identified any or all exceptions? And why? More about inductive reasoning. Men love inductive reasoning to prove error. They come to the Bible with their opinion. Instead of going to the Bible to get God's absolute statement, they go to the Bible with their opinion and then look for inductive particular facts that they can accumulate to say, See? Can you accumulate a number of particular facts from the Bible that men ought to keep the Sabbath? Do they num- does it number in the hundreds? But are there some, do I, do we have some absolute statements that tell us that your accumulation of particular facts are wrong? Because you're taking them from the Old Testament and we live in the New. Can somebody heap up a number of witnesses that say that musical instruments are used in the worship of God. Same thing, they take them from the old. We want to start with an absolute statement from the New Testament. New Testament worship is singing. And so it changes the way we reason. They then look for examples, events to fit their own opinion. We go to the Bible to find out what is true, and we use inductive reasoning from an axiom. We start out every time that we possibly can with a statement of God's Word, And we heap together observations and passages of Scripture simply to illustrate it or to show it to you. Bible uses of reasoning. Bible uses of reasoning. Many Scriptures were given earlier in that pink and white page as samples of the amount of verses that deal with logic, rhetoric, and reasoning. God reasoned for repentance. It's a verse we started out with. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. He challenged idolaters. Produce your cause. Bring your best reasons. And let me overthrow all of them. God and great saints reasoned extensively in the Bible. Here's an example. Paul's standard method was reasoning. Paul was a, ma- was a great logician and rhetorician. By inspiration, but also by training. When he appealed to Agrippa 
and presented his case, he went up against the best orator that the Jews could bring out of Jerusalem, and he did better than Tertullian. Tertullius, go read it in Acts chapter 26. Here's Paul's standard method of evangelism. It's based on reasoning. It's not based on chalk talks, playing the piano while you preach. Who does that? Jimmy Swaggart. Who does a chalk talk while he preaches? Peter Ruckman. This is Paul's method. His standard method was reasoning. And Paul, as his manner was. Do you know what that tells you? This is what Paul did. As his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Paul's ministry was based on reasoning. That is logical thinking and logical interpretation and application of the Word of God. Opening and alleging. These are legal terms describing what an attorney does in court. That Christ must needs. Notice that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Not that he did. Could Paul say that he did rise from the dead? Paul could say he rose from the dead and I saw him. Paul could say he rose from the dead and I am now going to raise your dead grandmother from the dead. He did not use that. He did not use either approach as his mainstay. His mainstay was to prove from the scriptures that Christ had to rise from the dead. Do you see that? It's it's logic. It's reasoning. It's rhetoric. It's persuasive power with words, but the words are God's words. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This is Paul's evangelism. Taking the word of God, applying logic to it, opening and alleging and reasoning and proving points. Paul's standard approach, he reasoned, using logical arguments to persuade men. He did it out of the scriptures, which is where we always want to start with our reasoning, assuming them to be totally true and valid. He opened, introducing his assertions and conclusions. It's like an attorney with his opening statement. He alleged, providing evidence to support his assertions. These are legal terms that describe a pleading of a case in court. He did not expect belief by his witness of Jesus raised from the dead or by his miracles. He reasoned that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. He reasoned that Christ must also rise from the dead and that Jesus of Nazareth satisfies all the arguments of Scripture. What is gospel preaching? It is reasoning out of the Scriptures. It is not a chalk talk. It's not a sob story. It's not a staged event. It's not sentimental appeal. It's not personal testimony. It requires an audience that fears God. It's based on Nehemiah 8.8 by giving the sense of words. Acts 17, which we just read, reasoning, opening, and alleging from the Word of God and rightly dividing that Word and making war against all the thoughts and imaginations of your head. That's what preaching is. That's what Paul said preaching is made up of right there. Paul at Mars Hill, the most intellectual audience to ever hear the gospel, the Greek philosophers. He opened by accusing them of superstition and proving it. 
because they had an altar made to the unknown God. He assumed existence of a single, personal Creator God. He didn't try to prove it. He just assumed it. He assumed that that God governs the world with total sovereignty and wisdom. He rejected Greek idols and temples as poppycock. They couldn't, they couldn't conceivably contain the creator of the universe. And this was with the most learned, educated, intellectual men of the world at that time. He rejected Greek superiority by lumping all men together. Oh, it was painful to find out that God hath made of one blood all nations of men that dwell on the face of the earth. He quoted a minor Greek poet, but no Bible when it was useful for his purposes. He condemned all men as ignorant and needing to repent. He gave an invitation based on the final judgment of God. He introduced Jesus' resurrection as proof of coming judgment. The specific logical tools that he used in that short sermon in Acts 17 would be one wonderful study. Most of the hearers rejected and mocked him. But some believed and they are named in our King James Bibles. Paul could not be answered. They had to mock him. When you mock a preacher or you mock someone presenting an argument to you, rather than answering it, what logical fallacy are you committing? Ad hominem. In, that's against the man. Instead of dealing with the arguments, you attack the man. So they mocked Paul because they couldn't answer him. Brethren, do you know what company that you're in to have a beloved brother like Paul? He went to Mars Hill called the Areopagus and took them all on. And when he walked out after a short presentation of the gospel, the way God inspired him to present it, some got up, said goodbye to their friends, and left with him. Let's leave with him tonight. Be encouraged and resolute when men must mock you. Because it proves that they can't answer your arguments. With Jews, Paul presumed on scriptural authority. Remember, he reasoned out of the scriptures. With pagans, he presumed on the assumed nature of God. When you meet an atheist, why would you waste your time with them? What are you going to show them? If you want to save an atheist, go home and get down on your knees. What are you going to do? Give him some book from Answers in Genesis? If that convinces him, I'm going to question his faith. He should be able to go outside and look up and know that he's a fool. We're looking at examples of logic in the Bible. This is about our beloved brother Paul as well. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Notice the words that the Bible chooses. Here it's not testified. It's not sang. It's not told about his conversion. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Every opportunity he could get, he reasoned. And remember, reasoning is the marshalling of arguments and evidence in order to persuade a hearer or an audience of the validity of the conclusions you want them to believe. And he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. That's how he did it. He reasoned to persuade. He didn't entertain. The word entertain isn't in the Bible. There aren't words in the Bible to even come close to entertain. He reasoned and persuaded. 
Here's Apollos. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, one of the, the second center of learning of that time, the largest library in the world, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla heard him preach and knew that he was a little confused. And so they took him home to explain the way of the Lord more perfectly to him. And when they were done with him, they unleashed him. For he mightily convinced. That's what preaching is to do, is to convince you of the truthfulness of conclusions from God's word. He mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Another example of Paul. He went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Listen, the preachers that we come from and the apostles that we come from were the greatest men on this earth when it came to presenting truth. They were not storytellers. They didn't tell fables. They didn't entertain. They didn't appeal to emotion. They appealed to truth, and they presented truth in powerful ways. They disputed. They disagreed and argued against every false notion that they encountered. And they persuaded men of the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, Before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is Jesus Christ disputing because he is tearing apart the house of cards that the Jewish scribes and Pharisees had built from their rabbinical learning in Babylon and the years following. Ye have heard by them of old time. He is not referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He's referring to those deluded Pharisees, and he's taking them apart. But I say unto you, but I say unto you, that is our Savior. He disputed, he tore apart their religion. And at the end of three chapters, what does it say? The people thought about his method and the weight of his presentation. They were astonished, for they had never heard such authority from the scribes and Pharisees. Remember? The last two verses of Matthew 7. Praise God. The whole world lieth in darkness. But God's given us his word. And he's given us great men that have opened his word. And he's showing us his word right now. And the emphasis in it on the logic of faith. Here's Paul again with a private audience of one man. Felix, the governor. And as he he appealed, as he pled, as he begged, as he stroked, as he manipulated, no, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. It's reasoning, part of logic, part of rhetoric. Another one, Acts 28, Paul gets to Rome. They bring the leaders of the Jews from the city of Rome to meet him because they've never met him before. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law, 
both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening, expounding, testifying, persuading. What about our young brother Elihu? Elihu had to listen to four old men, learned men, wise men, illogically treat each other. And he waited long enough until Job 32 when he said, It's time for me to speak. Hearken to me. Therefore I said, Hearken to me. I also will show you mine opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons, whilst ye searched out what to say. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job, or that answered his words. This is what godly men do. They answer words. Not with an opinion, not with I believe. Your statement, I believe, is no better than Charles Darwin, I believe. It's the word of God says, thus saith the Lord. And you, you quote a passage, or you quote a verse. And this is what Elihu did. He, he was sick of them. They couldn't give Job an answer. They couldn't convince him. Notice that the purpose of communication is to convince a person of what is true. They couldn't answer his words. Ah, oh, here's my favorite. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the master logician of all time. Logician means a user of logic. He was the greatest rhetorician ever. Persuasive speaking ability. God gave him the tongue of the learned. Isaiah 50 tells us so. No man ever spoke like Jesus Christ. Guards sent to apprehend him testified that of him. Men marveled when blessed to hear him debate. They marveled. And those that were the object of the debate durst ask him no more questions because they went home in shame, even when he was 12. Men were astonished when he preached. I know it's small. I hope you have better eyes than I do, but I'm going to read it to you. I love this prophecy of Jesus Christ as a logician and rhetorician, how he was going to use his mouth. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Don't read ahead. Take a hold of these words and pull them into your mind and heart. This is a description of our Savior as the greatest logician and rhetorician. Listen to this. The spirit of wisdom and understanding would be upon him and in him and through him in a measure like no one else. Hebrews chapter 1. The spirit of counsel and might. How effective would he be? He'd be powerful. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Look at those six descriptive statements about your Lord and my Lord. And the Lord shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. How long would it take him to grasp a fallacy in reasoning? How long would it take him to come up with an answer? And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Would he be misled by things he saw? Would he be misled by things he heard? Neither would he reprove after the hearing of his ears, because he would be taking a case apart 
in its truthful level, not in its presentation. He would say in John chapter 7 and verse 24, judge not after the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. With righteousness shall he judge the poor. He'll reprove the equity with, he'll reprove with equity the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. For those of you that have read the New Testament, was this fulfilled perfectly? Did he tear them apart? He was the greatest. His authoritative reasoning astonished people. He perfectly applied the principle of mercy. Matthew 12 about eating corn on the Sabbath day. He asked questions that silenced his opponents. He used parables Pharisees knew were for them when he got to the end. He appealed to de facto law to silence Herodians, who were sent to him by the Pharisees to question him about taxation. He crushed the Sadducees' fallacious argument about the resurrection. He applied an ancient verb tense to crush them after that. As Pharisees jumped in because he saw them besting the Sadducees, he asked them of Christ, whose son is he? No man could answer him a word. This is what the Bible says. No man could answer him a word. No man dared ask him any more questions. He perfectly applied the principle of intent, Mark 2. He commended a scribe for a discreet answer. He asked and answered difficult questions at 12, entertaining doctors of the law for three days. When finished, his adversaries were ashamed. The Bible tells us that with that word. Enemies could not answer his illustration of an ox in a pit. He promised to help his apostles silence any man. They wouldn't even have to study. Did his deacon Stephen do a decent job in Acts chapter 6 and 7? Could they gainsay him? When they can't gainsay you, what is the argumented, argumentum? Debaculum. The argument of the club. Stone them to death. If you can't defeat their arguments, then kill them. They stopped up their ears and ran on Stephen and stoned him to death because they couldn't gainsay his wisdom because his wisdom was from heaven. And and you say, I wish I had that kind of inspiration. So do I, but let's not wish for long. Let's just get our Bibles and learn them. Let's just get our Bibles and learn them. He gave learned disciples glorious heartburn. Do you know what that means? What book of the Bible would you go to to read about glorious heartburn? Luke 24. He opened the understanding of his apostles. He easily dispatched men accusing a woman. How long did it take him? Whosoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And writing on the ground. He used gods from David to defend himself in John chapter 10, taking a single verse out of the Psalms to ask them why he couldn't call himself the Son of God since they called their rulers gods. (laughs) Awesome. Beautiful. I give all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ tonight when we deal with a subject like logic and rhetoric as the greatest there ever was. Glorious. The tongue of the learned. Filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might. 
Here's what the Bible tells us about logic. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is an important verse describing our duty and obligation to be ready to answer for our faith. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Starting in your heart, set God apart as the great first cause of the universe, as your creator, as your savior, as your preserver. When you sanctify a thing, you set it apart for holy use. When you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, you delight in the Lord your God. You love Him. You adore Him. You praise Him. You humble yourself before Him. This is where evangelism starts, in the heart. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer. Not an opinion, not an idea, not a suggestion. An answer. To every man that asketh you a reason of the hope. When someone says to you, I want you to tell me why you do that. You don't say because that's what we believe. That's poppycock. Who cares what we believe? Show them from the Bible. They want, an, they want a reason for your hope. Give them a reason. If it was our brother Paul, he would give them a reason. He would dispute and he would open and he would allege and convince them and persuade them. Give them reasons and do with meekness and fear. If you have not sanctified the Lord God in your heart and are living a holy life subservient to him, and if you have not prepared yourself with a knowledge of the word of God, you will not be able to answer men with meekness and fear. You will get angry and presumptuous and proud and arrogant. It is a threat that we always face in our flesh when we get in an argument that we want to fall back on the fallacies that they use and argue against the man, attack him, or resort to language that is unnecessary. So here's what the Lord tells us that he wants us ready to do. He tells us to prove all things. Don't accept anything. And that includes your pastor. Question, examine, search the scriptures, prove all things. Prove. That means the use of logic, reasoning, and hold fast. Don't let go of whatever you find out is good. When you establish something to be truth, don't let anyone take it from you. Solomon would say, buy the truth and sell it not. These were more noble. Nobility. Would you like to be a prince? Would you like to be a lord? Lord Nathan, here's how you get there. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They just didn't take somebody's words in a pulpit. They wanted to prove that the source material accurately, thoroughly, completely backed up what was claimed by the apostle in his preaching. Therefore, many of them believed. When you use apostolic preaching methods and you use apostolic hearing methods, faith results. Solomon told his son this in Proverbs 22. This is all about logic. This is the certain words of truth. Where do you get them from? Bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. If you don't read the Bible and if you don't read it with an ear bowed down and humbled before it, and apply your heart to it, 
It's reading that doesn't matter. Don't, don't waste your time. Watch cartoons. But if you're going to read the Bible, apply your heart to it and, and pull it in. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee, they shall withal be fitted in thy lips. If you apply your heart and read meditatively and carefully those words and the force of them and knowing what the axioms of Scripture are will be fitted in your lips, you will be able to have a ready answer. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth? The certainty of the words of truth. Not an idea, not a possibility. That thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. That little section in Proverbs 22 tells us how seriously we ought to take the reading of God's word and the listening when we're in an assembly like this. And I have done the reading, and I'm trying to give it back to you in a limited number of minutes from a great number of minutes so that you can take it in and have it fitted in your lips and be able to give the certain words of truth. We don't want to give ideas or suggestions or possibilities. We want to give the certain words of truth to those that ask us. The Bible use of logic. Prophets reason by analogy to magnify offenses. What did they accuse Israel of a, a hundred times when they practiced idolatry? Spiritual adultery or whoredom. Israel went a-whoring. Is Ezekiel 16 graphic? 22, 23. Yes. Jesus argued from lesser to greater in various ways. Did Jesus say, if ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father? That is logic. That is, you will accept the first one. That yes, when your child wants something or comes and asks you for something, you want to do your best to please them. And if you, being evil, and his audience knew they were evil compared to God in heaven... If they, being evil, wanted to give good gifts, then they knew, without quoting a Bible verse, that God in heaven would do better. That's logic. That's powerful. Few words, powerful. We love to use it. We love to quote it when we're calling on the Lord. Paul argued from lesser to greater various ways, like in Hebrews, when he said, if they got punished for breaking the old covenant... How much are they going to be punished for breaking the new covenant in the book of Hebrews? There's so many examples. If we just went from Jesus arguing from the lesser to greater, hair, sparrows, grass of the field. If God takes care of the grass of the field, what's the purpose of that statement? God and grass. You guys go out with your lawnmower and cut down grass. If God takes care of the grass of the field, should you worry about clothing? That is logic. It's persuasive. It's powerful. It's what our Lord used. Jesus argued from greater to lesser about hatred. If they've hated me, they're certainly going to hate you. <laughs> That's greater to lesser because his apostles were lesser than he. Paul argued from greater to lesser about judging. When he found out that the church at Corinth were, had their own, were, were taking matters between them to small claims court into the courts of the of the land of Greece, he said, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? If you're going to judge angels, can't you handle the smallest things? 
That all that's logic. Why didn't he just say, boys, men, and brethren, at the church of Corinth, you should deal with these matters yourself. There's a more powerful way of doing it. You're going to judge angels. Don't you think you're capable of taking care of a jigsaw with the power cord ripped off it? Jesus argued deductively from David's son as Lord. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said David's son. If he's David's son, then why did David call him Lord? And that is a chain of deductive reasoning from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus argued the rank of healing to forgiving sins. Do you remember when he said, Thy sins be forgiven thee? The Pharisees jumped on him. Only God can forgive sins. Like, hello? Only God can heal a man that's been lame from his mother's womb. So all he would say is, which is greater? Forcing them to go through the mental exercise of realizing, oh, uh, I guess they're both divinely enabled or necessitating a divine help. Jesus destroyed the accusation he had Beelzebub. This would take five minutes to go through it as he tore them apart, proving an argument of absurdity. Oh, I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebub. If I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebub, a house divided cannot stand. Then Satan's kingdom cannot stand. But you know better than that. His kingdom does stand. And if I'm doing it by Beelzebub, what about those gypsies you have in your nation that you hate? By whose authority are they doing it? He tore them apart. He used the law of identity, the law of contradiction, the excluded middle, when he said, if they're not for us, they're against us. It's beautiful. All in one little passage from the Master. Didn't his apostles call him the Master? He's our Master. And I love our Master. Peter argued inductively from David at Pentecost. He quotes Psalm 22, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. He says, Now David wrote the words, but we know that David's sepulcher is right here in Jerusalem right now. Well, we also know that David's a prophet. Well, if David's a prophet, and David's buried, and did see corruption, we know that his prophecies had to include Christ. He must have been talking about Jesus. Yes! It's Jesus who's risen from the dead. That's inductive reasoning done properly. And it is inductive reasoning. Taking particular facts, putting them together, and a solution that solves them all. The Lord Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Paul took the very same argument and used it at Antioch in chapter 13 of Acts. Paul argued deductively about rest in Hebrews 4, proving that it wasn't the Sabbath, proving that it wasn't Joshua getting them into Canaan by the deductive main premise that Psalm 95 comes after both of them. Paul argued lesser to greater throughout Hebrews. Better promises. Better covenant. Paul argued deductively from the word new. Now if this second covenant is called new, then the first one must be old and it's ready to vanish away. Paul argued deductively of a change in the priesthood being a necessity. 
he went through enough reasoning in Hebrews chapter 7 that he ended up with a necessity. That is an obvious conclusion that you can't avoid. This is examples in the Bible of the use of logic. And this list could be multiplied on and on and on. Applications. Divorce and remarriage. Deductive premises of mercy and intent of Jesus. Matthew 12 and Mark 2. Mercy is more important than sacrifice. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Inductive reasoning aligns Sabbath and marriage as two equal commandments. Inductive reasoning from showbread confirms that mercy and intent are more important than sacrifice and ceremony. Inductive reasoning of strict language confirms that Jesus would say swear not at all when he meant don't swear by anything but God. Inductive reasoning of Pauline exception in 1 Corinthians 7, not mentioned by Jesus, and plainly told us by Paul that Jesus had not taught his divorce and remarriage doctrine. We can we combine it all together, and we can conclude that there are marriage situations where we can justify divorce that do not involve adultery, fornication, or desertion. But they don't apply to anyone in this room yet, and they shouldn't. Interracial marriages, deductive premise, Moses married an Ethiopian, inductive, God has a division of races, languages, and nations that he established from the Tower of Babel. Inductive, God allowed things like polygamy. Inductive, God allowed Israel to have a king, though it was not his desire for them. We conclude it's not a sin, but neither is it wise. Our position that we've always held. Foot washing. Is John 13 inductively sufficient for an ordinance? You go and read John 13, that Jesus after supper was ended, girded himself with a towel and washed their feet. So you go look at that and you pull it in. You have one observation of foot washing where Jesus said to follow his example. Is 1 Timothy 5.10 a further inductive evidence to be added on to John 13, which is how the doctrine is proven? No. No. 1 Timothy 5.10 deductively proves otherwise. It proves that foot washing could not have been an ordinance practiced by the whole church. John 13 then, because of 1 Timothy 5.10, inductively shows that Jesus was giving an object lesson of humility and service. Fallacies of reasoning. They're paper clips. You can't make something beautiful out of paper clips. Well, she just did. His logic is flawed. Our overall project has been Bible hermeneutics and logic and proper reasoning are one of the tools in the arsenal of properly interpreting Scripture, which is what Bible hermeneutics is. I want to introduce you to that. I'm introducing you to logic and reasoning and rhetoric tonight. I want you to revel in our God's challenge for the world to bring their best against him because he's going to mock them and overthrow them with truth and righteous reasoning. I want you to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is not a long-haired hermaphrodite standing at a door that couldn't figure his way out of a simple 
jigsaw puzzle or fight his way out of a wet paper bag. But he's the Lord of glory, and he was given the spirit of counsel and of might and the tongue of the learned. I want you to appreciate the men that have gone before us, like the Apostle Paul, like Stephen, like Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team, and what they were able to do by learning the Word of God and just some basic elementary aspects of logical reasoning to be able to help Apollos. I want you to understand there's a large field of study that you can learn more very easily on your computers that's now available. You wouldn't have to go get a special book in a library. I want you to be warned to question everything you hear, including from our pulpit. I want you to be able to be think, I want you to be thinking about how you are going to present truth to others and how to be able to spot the fallacies in their reasoning when you're dealing with them. Those are some of our objectives. It's a wonderful subject. We should never apologize for being Christians. We're the only ones that have the truth. And if you're ever pressed into a corner and you have to say, well, the Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it as far as I'm concerned, you have just taken one great position on a subject. Don't be afraid of anyone because their alternatives are horrible in comparison to standing on the Word of God. The fact that they don't understand faith or appreciate faith, understand or appreciate the Bible, is their fault, not ours. We know it's true. We're thankful to the Lord for showing us its truth. Fallacies of logic. One of the most useful aspects of logic study is to learn some fallacies so that you learn to think through what did that person say? Did they prove what they were trying to prove. And it's easily one of the most fun aspects of studying logic. And you're going to find fallacies and reasoning everywhere. Politicians, newspapers, magazines, at work, talking to people, sound bites here and sound bites there in pulpits. It's everywhere, especially in a sound bite driven generation. Websites and books are available for a whole lot more than what I'm going to give you. And I will give you the links and the references to books that would take you further than I'm going to take you before we end tonight. Most fallacies have Latin names, but those are unnecessary. Whatever you need to remember a fallacy the best is what you ought to use. Now here's a fallacy. Imagine a world without religion. See, that's got deductive reasoning in it, and it's reasoning that all religions are dangerous, they're all the same, all religion's the same, and religion is dangerous, and it's religion, in general, that caused the two towers to come down in New York. But you, you should learn to look at a sentence like that, or a clause, and know that it's wrong, and be able to identify how it's wrong, taking the major premise about all religions, and that religions are dangerous and religions caused the two towers to come down and refute it, knowing that only a few exceptional religions would do anything like that. And that if we were to have a picture of a world without religion, it would be savagery. If it wasn't for the residual effect of the fear of God in this earth and the conscience God has put in men, there would be chaotic anarchy, mayhem, and murder everywhere.
Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee in the remainder of wrath. Thou shalt restrain. Fallacies of logic. Let's look at some faulty syllogism. A syllogism is where we have that major premise, minor premise, and a conclusion. The major premise for this particular example, God is eternal. Is that true? Yes. Minor premise, Jesus is God. Is that true? Conclusion, therefore Jesus is eternal. False. Because Jesus is not simply or only God. He is the God-man. And as such, as the God-man, he's not eternal. Because Jesus of Nazareth is the combination of the eternal God and the human nature, which was not eternal. And so though God is eternal is true, and Jesus is God is true, Jesus is not only God, Jesus is also man, and in his humanity, he was not eternal. Therefore, the minor premise needs to be explained more, needs to be criticized. Jesus is more than God. Jesus is a man. He's the God-man. He's Jehovah in the flesh. But we find that to be false. Sort of like this. Is two a number? Is one a number? Does two equal one? Because they're not the same number. (laughs) Non sequitur is Latin for it does not follow. That does not make sense. That is ridiculous. That is nonsensical. Such an argument makes no sense. A non sequitur. If you ever hear someone say that's a non sequitur, well, that means either they didn't understand your argumentation or someone said something that simply doesn't make sense. The argument doesn't follow. It lacks proper connections in reasoning to come to the conclusion. The illogical connection varies greatly, and that's our job, to find them and to pinpoint when we need to. That's false because of this. A major premise. Baptism leads to all other commandments. The man who ordained me separated from me on the next two syllogisms along with other reasons. Major premise, baptism leads to all other commandments. You know, I'd want to say, could you clarify that a little bit? Minor premise, duties of church members are part of God's commandments. The major premise is taken from Matthew 28. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. From those two verses, baptism leads to other commandments. Duties of church members are commandments. Conclusion, baptism results in church membership. False. Baptism does not create all roles possible for the commandments of the New Testament that Jesus and the apostles taught. False. Baptism doesn't lead to marriage duties. And the simplest way to respond is to say, well, if your argument is true that baptism results in church membership because you have to be a church member to keep what all things whatsoever I have commanded you, then baptism must also result in marriage so that you can keep all the commandments about marriage. 
that Jesus and the apostles taught. Another non sequitur from Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.47 says, And as and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Church membership results in salvation from Acts 2.47. This is their major premise. Minor. Baptism results in salvation from Mark 16.16. 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Conclusion. Baptism results in church membership by connecting Acts 2.47 and Mark 16.16. 16. False. There are various salvations in the New Testament, and you better identify which one you're talking about in each of those respective cases. We, we can't just use the word salvation as we've learned from the five phases of salvation. False. If your argument is true, and this is the way I typically like to reason with a person, if your argument is true from your major minor premises and the conclusion, then baptism also calls, causes perseverance because in Matthew 24:13 it says, And he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And so if baptism causes salvation, then it also causes perseverance. And we know that it doesn't, and even they should know that. But these are arguments that were thrown at us that are so ridiculous as we took a stand on the issue of baptism and church membership. Another non, More about non-sequiturs. The false reasoning in a non-sequitur, can be crafty and difficult to find. Or it can be so stupid, it becomes difficult to find. Any reasoning from Scripture had better agree with Scripture. Remember, there are no contradictions. Wasn't that rule one that we started with several months ago? So remember that first rule, there are no contradictions in the Bible. And there is no substitute for knowing the Bible. All of it. We need to read our Bibles. You need to read your Bibles. I need to read and absorb it and take it in and accumulate the knowledge that is there. Here's a fallacy. It's an ad hominem. It's a personal attack fallacy. The big shrimp says, can we let a shrimp like this run our great country? Now see, that stirs your nationalistic feelings about our great country, but he's looking down at that little puny looking guy and saying, can, a, can we let a shrimp like this run our country? When the issue of running a country has nothing to do with size, it has to do with the platform you're running on and the character you have to keep your platform. Notice, in a fallacy, you are being redirected away from dealing with the issue at hand to dealing with something else. So they don't have to prove their point. Personal attacks are everywhere. We we engage in personal attacks too much. Could a Muslim be a decent president for our country? Could a Muslim whose grandfather was a goat herder in Kenya be a decent president of our country? Could a president that's a Muslim and his grandfather was a goat herder in Kenya and he doesn't have a valid birth certificate in the United States be a decent president? Yes. All things are possible. We want to deal with issues. Logic is dealing with fact and error, truth and error. What's false? What's true? Not these personal attacks. Cyrus was quite a decent king for the people of God. So was Nebuchadnezzar. 
So was Ahasuerus. Anyway, fallacies of logic. A faulty dilemma. It's when you allow only two possibilities when there are more. Example, either vote for it or we're going to end up in war. Well, now, between voting for it and ending up in war, voting for it and not having war, and not voting for it and ending up in war, there's this whole spectrum of possibilities that can occur as well. But we love to boil things down to yes or no to force them to choose between two extremes when there's options in between. Example, the Sadducees said to Jesus, by the time they got done with their story, their tender, tear-jerking story about the woman that was married to a brother and he died, and so then his brother had to marry her, and then he died, and then the third brother married her, and he died, until there were seven brothers that married this woman, and they said to Jesus, in the resurrection that you think there is, and that you claim to believe in, whose wife will she be? Either there's no resurrection, or a woman's going to have seven husbands in heaven. That's a faulty dilemma. Because there was another answer in the middle. There is no marriage in heaven, you idiots. Example, election is wrong, or I can live wickedly any way I want to. Ever heard that one? They'll usually word it, if election's right, then I can live any way I want to. If election's true, it doesn't matter how I live. There's other options in between there, such as what we believe. God elects us, but the only way we know we're elect is to live a holy and righteous life. Very different from what a scorner would say about election. Look for the use of or in trying to force you to two extremes, either or when there are more options in between. Begging the question. It's reasoning in a circle by assuming your conclusion and not proving your point. The error is saying A equals B without proving evidence to that end. Example, evolution is true. This is just an extreme one to help you get the idea. Evolution is true because it can't be false. You haven't proven your point. You're begging the question. Our whole question is, is evolution true or not? Example, Colossians 2.16 that says that Jesus Christ by his death on the cross put away Sabbath days, it can't mean weekly Sabbaths because God hasn't put away weekly Sabbaths. It's all, you, it's, they're begging the question. Now this one you've probably run into. The wine Jesus drank had to be juice because Jesus wouldn't drink alcoholic wine. Now, wait a minute. That's the whole issue we're debating. Prove your point. Don't say, every time they find a verse with wine in the Bible that's commended, then it must be grape juice. Anytime wine is condemned, it must be alcoholic. That's begging the question. They're assuming that wherever wine is commended, it must be grape juice without proving the point. The same thing with the Sabbath. I've been through that Sabbath one so many times. Colossians 2.16 can't be talking about weekly Sabbaths. Because the weekly Sabbath is the fourth commandment. Argumentum ad hominem. Against the man. That's Latin for against the man. It's when you attack the person instead of his reasons. When reasons fail, 
After all, there is something you can do. Attack the character of the person that you're discussing with. Though a wise man has said, prove me the devil's brother, but my reasons still stand. You know, it doesn't matter about our character. When it comes to an argument, the argument stands or falls on its own merit of the use of logic and the source of truth in proving its conclusions. Now, a Christian wants to live in such a way, and the Bible says this, to stop and shut the mouths of gainsayers. So a Christian wants character to where they cannot use ad hominem against them. What could Paul say in front of all the Jews in Acts chapter 22? I I have lived in good conscience unto this day. Oh, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? That is to completely remove yourself from the argument. Here are the events that happened in my life, but I have lived in a good conscience as a faithful Jew all the days of my life. Example, Festus told Agrippa that Paul was mad. Festus could not refute what Paul was saying, so he resorted to saying he was mad. Have you ever been told when they hear some of the things we believe, you guys are nuts? Well, you just ran into a Festus. They won't deal with our arguments. They'll just call us names. That's ad hominem against the man. Example, the Jews said Jesus was a Samaritan. They said he had a devil because they couldn't deal with his arguments. So when you hear anything like that, and brethren, arguments ad hominem influence your mind. If you're told a person is a scoundrel before you meet them, you're going to hear the things said about from that person, tainted a little bit, that he may be a scoundrel. And you want to divorce that as much as possible and lay hold of what is actually being said. A scoundrel can say the truth. Even Pope Benedict the Sixteenth gets truth out once in a while. Like Tim said, all things are possible. Logic. Most of the green is touching the red. Is that true? Most of the red is touching the blue. Is that true? Yep. Since most of the green is touching the red and most of the red is touching the blue, most of the green must be touching the blue. Nope. There's symbolic logic and Venn diagrams for logic that are a whole field of study on how to visualize fallacies and how to how to draw them but it's an it's way beyond what we want to do poisoning the well it's a logical fallacy poison the well you go to a well to get water so you're poisoning the source of the argument it's against the origin of the source instead of arguing against their reasons example don't listen to him His family's Mormon. What does that have to do with the truth or error of the things he's saying? It doesn't matter what his family is. Is he saying the truth or is he not? Are his arguments valid or are they not? Example, don't vote for Bush. He drank in college. 
Do you remember how much that man had to live down his hard drinking days when he was in college? You know, when I speak respectfully for the president that said he didn't inhale, he had to live down smoking in college. That doesn't, that doesn't influence at all the platform that he's running on, except to the little tiny degree that we do want a man of character in the office of president. But it doesn't deal with the issues of what he is saying he's going to do as the president of our country. It, it poisons anything coming from President Bush because he was a hard drinker early in his life. Example, who said this, who asked this question? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel. When Philip went to find Nathaniel under the fig tree and told him, I have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Wanting to poison the well of Jesus Christ before he met him. Now the Lord took care of him and told him that he had seen him while he was sitting under the fig tree. Example, they're wrong. Their church is a cult. I'm sorry that it's cut off because of Mr. Gates. They're wrong. Their church is a cult. See, that's poisoning the well. You're, have we ever heard that one before? Our church is a cult. Therefore, it taints anything that we say in their minds. They don't even know how to define a cult. They don't even know what the word means. They couldn't even apply it to us. The greatest religious cult in the world today has 1.1 billion members in the name of Christ. It is the Roman Catholic Church. They can tell you that a cracker is no longer a cracker, but is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, and you better believe it. They can tell you that you cannot eat meat on Friday. They can tell you that if you're going to be a minister in their church, male or female, you can't get married and you cannot own a thing. You will make a vow of celibacy and poverty. They will tell you that if your child isn't baptized, it's not going to heaven. They will tell you that if the marriage isn't in the Catholic Church, it's not a real marriage. Now that's a cult. We don't do anything like that in our church. Poisoning the well. Argumentum ad baculum. Argument of the club. Appeals to fear or harm. An example. Here's Islam's evangelistic methods. Accept Allah's religion or die, infidel. They evangelize the world with the point of a scimitar. Example. The Dark Ages and our fathers in the faith in Europe. Admit our cracker God or burn for it. Another example. John chapter 9. John chapter 10. Reject Jesus or lose your place in the synagogue. Did that affect men? Example. If you reject Easter, you'll lose friends. <laughs> Amen. Yes, the friends we lose by not celebrating Easter are friends we don't need. But notice, the argument is not Easter is right or wrong. Easter is not biblical, or it is biblical. It's if you don't celebrate Easter, there's going to be painful consequences. It's, it's an argument away from the point. And yet, these are so common. 
I can't, I can't stop celebrating Christmas. My whole family will turn against me. Well, that isn't the real issue, friend. Let's deal with the issue of whether Christmas is scriptural or not first. Then if you want to make a decision that you don't want to keep the scriptures because you love your family more, that's okay. Jesus said there'd be a whole lot like you. But let's start with, is Christmas scriptural or not? Argumentum ad vericundian. Appeal to revered authority. This is what Brother Tim has to deal with all the time. The only revered authority we know is Jesus Christ and the Bible. The example. Here's what a Catholic would say if you were to question the ascension of Mary. They believe that Mary ascended up into heaven just like Jesus did. You say, Mary didn't ascend up into heaven. Jesus is the only one. The magisterium says Mary ascended. Magisterium is a word describing the ministerial authority from the Pope down of the Catholic Church. It is higher than the Bible. They don't care what you can show from the Bible because the magisterium has already interpreted that to mean something different. So, you may. Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead before he ascended into heaven. Mary didn't. Thank you. Example. But the 1689 Baptist Confession says, you haven't answered the point. The only revered authority we care about is Jesus Christ and the Bible, the head of our church and the book of our church, not a confession of faith. Example. Who said this? We follow Moses. God spake to him. Whether God spake to this man, we don't know. What chapter? What event? The blind man. Notice the argument to authority. We follow Moses. Who is this Jesus? We know God spake to Moses. We don't know if God spake to Jesus. Example. Have any rulers or Pharisees believed? When the, when the officers came back and hadn't brought Jesus, and they said, never man spake like this man, the response was, have any rulers or Pharisees believed? They haven't believed, so don't you let that affect you. More. Our Bible blasts all authority but God in itself. It's why we love verses like Psalm 119, 98 through 100, that God's word is able to make us wiser than our enemies wiser than our teachers, and wiser than the ancients. That's why we quote those verses to embed in your minds, we don't care about any appeal to any other revered authority, except to God's Word. Rome's church fathers are a morass of heresy. They contradict themselves coming and going. That vast number of men believe so many different heresies. You can never find a unanimous or majority opinion on hardly any subject. But they appeal to that as the authority of their church. There's the verse I just mentioned. Creeds and confessions are nothing to Scripture. A majority or a crowd of heretics is no better than one heretic. It's still a heresy. Appeal to pity. Evoke sorrow. Evoke sorrow for an argument rather than answer 
the argumentation. Example, student to a teacher. If I don't get an A, teacher, it's going to ruin my GPA. Mark, did you ever use that one? (laughs) Example, a man interviewing for a job, instead of producing his resume and his accomplishments, I need this job. I have five kids at home. That's an appeal to pity instead of an appeal to your accomplishments. Example, but what of those with a gift for piano? You would not believe how many times I've had to deal with this. They write me because of the document that Matthew put on our website of that piano. They write and say, but God gave me a gift to play the piano. Do you mean my gifts can't be used in his worship? Trying to evoke... (laughs) That's... Newell, exactly. That's the kind of way I like to respond. You know, why go through all this logical uh, rules, just point out the fallacy by taking it to a a logical extreme? Newell? But these people that will write in and say, you know, I have a gift. God gave me the gift. Are you telling me I can't use God's gift in the worship of God? And there's Newell goes, and you know you could raise another hundred of them. There's men who are mechanically gifted. Example, if there's no Christmas, what do I do for my children? Trying to evoke pity instead of... Remember, the reason for this lesson tonight, what is the issue? Is Christmas scriptural or not? That is the issue. And all these fallacies get you diverted from the real issue. Example, I could not believe in a God that elects. I just can't do it. I've had that one thrown at me. Do you remember, Jeff? Mrs. Walter Hanford, John R. Race's daughter, in the first year or so I was here in Greenville. I can't believe, I can't accept a God that elects people. That just doesn't seem fair to me. And they try to evoke pity that maybe we should come up with a better explanation for the doctrine of election. Or maybe it's not true because their sympathetic understanding just doesn't isn't compatible with it. It's an evoke to pity instead of... What does the Bible say? What is true? What is false? What is right? What is wrong? A red herring. This is the name of a logical fallacy. It's to introduce irrelevant information to sidetrack you. Example, if I believe this, I'd have to believe that. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this. Is this true or not? Is this true or false? Example. Have you ever run into this one when you're talking to someone about what we believe and you bring up election? But what about you bring up regeneration? But what about you bring up the holidays? But what about you bring up the King James? But what about you bring up musical instruments? But what about, but, 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 but. They're always wanting to bounce to a new topic 
because they do not want to address and deal with the one you've brought up. You have them. They don't know their Bibles. They've usually never heard our position before. And so they just respond with buts. It's a red herring to bring up something else that is not related to the debate at hand. Example, thou was born in sin. Who said it? To whom? I've used this man. Yes, the Jews to the blind man. John 9 is, John 9 is full of good and bad reasoning. The Jews were horrible. Thou was born in sin? What does that have to do with Jesus healing a blind man? Who cares if he was born in sin? Did Jesus heal the blind man? If he healed the blind man, is he God? Is he a prophet at least? But no, a red herring, throwing out something else, and would that have been discouraging to a, a young man or a middle-aged man to, have, to be told that by the rulers of the Jews? Thou was born in sin. You know, we say, so what? Is Jesus the one that healed him or not? He wasn't too discouraged. Paul wants to remind me, and I know that he certainly wasn't. He was one great brother in John 9. Example, we can't do that. Charismatics do it. We can't do that. Southern Baptists do it. We can't do that. New Spring does it. We don't care who does it. As long as we can defend it with the Bible. We just want to do what the Bible says. Our conclusion. There are so many more fallacies and I'm going to send them to you if you want to look at some websites that go through them in a summarized fashion. Logical reasoning and rhetoric are great to learn because they help us interpret Scripture to know God's thoughts. They help us to rightly grasp and understand and hold Scripture, helping us with our thoughts. And they help us in dealing with another person to identify false reasoning in their conversation and to help us form our arguments for their thoughts. So it's God's thoughts, our thoughts, and others' thoughts that are all dependent on us having a proper understanding of logic and seeing its importance and putting a little bit of effort in to questioning everything you read and hear. Just question it. Has that been proven adequately? Is that based on the foundation of Scripture? I want you all, and I want to be an attentive, critical, and questioning hearer, even in our own assembly. Because that's how you learn to do it. It's by reason of use that you have your senses exercised to discern good and evil. It's not once every ten years when I can make a presentation like this. It's every time you hear something, exercise your senses. Point out to your children, like the Twin Towers, that not all religions are like that. They are misconstruing religion and blaming it for the Twin Towers in New York City. Learn to question all the time and to, and to be critical. To search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Because that's a noble attitude toward hearing. I hope that you will always do that.
Look for fallacies everywhere because they are everywhere. And demand true proof. Brethren, when we look at a subject like this and we think about how different we are from the world and how different we are from the Christian world, is it because we're smarter than they are? No. Is it because we know logic better than they do? No. Some of them know logic far better than we do. They could employ the reasons, they could, uh, they could name the rules of logic better. Why do we believe the things that we believe? By the grace of God in our lives. Luke 16.31 is Abraham telling the rich man that even if Lazarus was to go back from the dead, which would be quite a logical argument, this man was dead and he saw heaven and he's here. It wouldn't be good enough. Because if the word of God isn't able to convert the soul, then neither would a man coming back from the dead. We, we need to remember that. That God has done something bigger than that and better than that in our hearts. Second Timothy 2, 25 through 26 is where men oppose themselves. That is being illogical. When you oppose yourself, you are contradicting reason. Why does it happen? Because they are taken captive by the devil at his will. And unless God grants them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, they will remain in his captivity. Why are we not in his captivity? By the grace of God. God granted us repentance to turn us from our foolishness and our own illogical living to follow the word of God. Now, brethren, 1 Peter 3.15 had these words, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready always to give an answer to every man who asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How do you get other men to ask you about the hope that is in you and for a reason of it? It is to live a holy, godly, virtuous, noble, kind, loving, gentle, gracious life. If you do, that is what causes men to ask. What makes the difference in your life? You're happy. You're cheerful. You're thankful. You're merciful. You're forgiving. You're diligent. You're honest. You're impeccably honest. You're respectful to authority. You're punctual. You're willing to do any task without complaining. It's that kind of a life that will have men ask. And so the bottom line is, if we're going to be ready, we need to learn logic and think through thinking and think through what we hear and read. But we want to live the godly lives that will cause others to ask us about the hope that is in us. The Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest. His apostles were right behind him. The Bible is full of it from cover to cover. God doesn't ask you to assume anything. He says, go outside because the heavens declare the glory of God. He says, bring your strong causes and your best reasons. I alone declare the end from the beginning. The Bible's a book of logic. Our God is true. We never should be ashamed as Christians. I hope that you'll put a little bit of effort into thinking more critically after tonight.
even in our own church, and that will always go right to the heart of the matter, thus saith the Lord. And that's where we will buy the truth and never sell it. May the Lord bless our study tonight.